podcast has bad words. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan was doing acid with his mom in seventh grade, dude. So I was, I was the, I was the news anchor for this like news show that uh, we did in high school. It was like it didn't go out to the whole high school, but it was just like this specific class. Anyway. Um, I would get wasted before every single taping. And it's funny because like after <clears throat> after high school, I was working like a Kentucky Fried Chicken or something. And the woman who ran the program, she came in and she was like, Ryan, I just want to let you know. She's like, I took your tape and I sent it to state finals. And you, she's like, you placed third out of all the high schools with this news program. I'm like, you want to know my secret, Mrs. Brooks? And she was like, what? I'm like, I got drunk before every single show. And the look on her face, it was like, I told her I killed her dog or something. <laughs> oh like she, her, she was so heartbroken, and I was like, "I'm just kidding, Mrs. Brooks." She's like, "Oh, thank God, Ryan. I thought you were serious for a second. <laughs> oh, oh, I think Sean's recording this. This is probably a good place to start. <laughs> that definitely should have been on the record. Oh my God, yeah. We're here with Rich Roll, um, and we're talking about normalcy today, but not going back to normal. We've got a bunch of surprise questions to answer today, but first let's read some more about less. This article I had was from Forbes, and instead of just reading the whole article, I just wrote down the three main points. It's about the three things that are going to change for the better or yeah. for the worse. This I'm is not really new sure. abnormal. I'm just working on new abs. <laughs> <laughs> I like how that, there's, there's a minimalism to that, too. You just took off the last part of that word. Right. <laughs> The new abs. The new abs. Uh, so, so this article from Forbes talks about three things that they project are going to happen. Number one, I'm really this is optimistic. More saving, less spending. Mm. I don't know that I agree with that. I think the opposite could happen, and let, let me say why. Because we've removed a bunch of the friction from the process. Before you had to go out to the retail store, and now it's like, well, you're trapped at home. But literally anything you want is one click away i mean that's what they call it one click purchases right yeah, yeah. so let's let's talk about this I, I mean do you see people they're gonna say i mean i think some people might save more and spend less but i don't know if that's going to i hope it continues i don't know i mean i found myself you know buying stuff on like i don't really buy stuff online that often but right. you know i've been doing more of that i think we have to contextualize this around the fact that there are what 30 million americans now unemployed so having a conversation around saving needs to take into consideration that there are so many people losing their jobs right now and yeah, the yeah. level of disposable income is dropping. And I think the pandemic is, a lot of people are talking about this, so this isn't my idea, but the pandemic is really an accelerant to trends that are already underway, whether it's the move to um, education becoming more online, to retail, uh, you know, moving online as well. Like right. we're just seeing basically kerosene on this on this fire. And, you know, when when there's looting and stores are getting broken into and people can't shop there anyway, of course, the byproduct of that is that everything is moving more and more online. And with that comes that temptation with mm. the one click to just do it. And yeah. so I'm sure if you looked at the statistics, and I don't know what that Forbes article said, but I'm sure it bears out that you know the, the that people are buying stuff online more and yeah. more now. Yeah. <laughs> well, here, so here's the stat. So, e-commerce has grown 18% over the last 18 years. So one percent a year over the last 18 mm -hmm. years, basically. And in the last, uh, well, so far this year, it's grown another 10%. Oh wow. And so we, it's your point exactly. We have 
10 years of accelerant in a three-month period. Mm -hmm. And that's also true with job loss and everything else. So I think what Rich might be saying here is what we could see potentially is because of 30 to maybe even 40 million people out of work, you, you might start to see less savings and less spending because of you know, less disposable income as yeah. a result. Maybe we can edit this. This uh, What is it? More savings, less spending. Like maybe uh, less debt more savings less debt something like that because i know that people will certainly start to look at debt differently i know people personally who uh have said like my sister is coming to me and she's like ryan your whole debt free thing she's like i get it now because she just bought a car right before the pandemic mm -hmm. and she's like yeah i wish i wouldn't have done that and i've had other friends and family who are like yeah you always talk about being debt free and that is, uh, I, yeah, that's really highlighted right now during this this pandemic. Personally, I found that I've been saving a ton. Like, mm -hmm. whether it's uh, going out, uh, my groceries have gone up uh, right, on same, the budget, same. like way up. But uh, like fun and entertainment, going out to movies, going out to concerts, yeah, all going, going, yeah. So like I have been, you know, saving, uh, you know, I don't know, five percent, whatever that is in my budget a month. But um, personally, I have been saving more and spending less. Yeah, and I think if you're a business owner, the businesses that are very leveraged with debt right now are the ones that are gonna get crushed, mm -hmm. of course. Yeah. And the ones with sound financials are gonna be able to weather the storm a little bit longer. Absolutely. Yeah, and actually that's point number three here is small business looks scarier. And I, I both agree with that and disagree with that. It depends on the nature of the small business. If it's a, a solo entrepreneur, I actually think you're probably more secure now than before because you can't lay yourself off. And so you might have to adjust. So the thing about small business is far more nimble, right? Mm -hmm. uh, however, if you're a small business with 300 employees and you're leveraged to the, to the hill with, with, with debt and, and now all of a sudden you're not bringing in revenues, yeah, you're gonna start laying people off like that. Mm. So uh, number two was new supply chains. And I, I I mean, I, I'm hopeful for this because yeah. w what we're learning throughout all of this and what the article points out is we were way too reliant on one place to manufacture all of our goods, yeah. China. Mm -hmm. And th that's a problem for a bunch of reasons, uh, one of which is that we don't produce anything nationally or, or even more important, locally. And mm -hmm. so when we talk about you know buy local, that's not just buy local in the shop that's close to you, but... If your shop, the shop down the street from you is selling you jeans that were made in China, it's still not buying local in a way. Right. So we might see more opportunities and an increased awareness around this, I think. Yeah, I would, I, would, I would be hopeful. I mean, I think the fact that our supply chain is completely uh, dispatched to China in such a large part is highly problematic. And I think the pandemic has illuminated, you know, why that's a problem. I mean, mm. it's, a, it's everything from an economic risk to a national security risk. And I think we saw it with, you know, the difficulty in getting things like masks and PPE to our healthcare workers. The fact that so much of that was manufactured in China and we couldn't get it here in time creates all these downstream domino effect problems. And I think, you know, it's incumbent upon us as a country to figure out how to return to some level of manufacturing in an economically viable way so that we can take care of ourselves 
in moments where strain is placed on that supply chain. You know, we just operate like everything is going to always be the way that it is, exactly. you know, <laughs> and we're in this post-history world and uh, we're realizing just how fragile our systems are and this thin veneer of, of society that rests on top of, you know, what's happening is, you know, is being, is being fractured and how quickly and easily we can resort to our base nature in in times of crisis yeah right and and of course we never look in the rear view and say i wish i would have panicked more yesterday but in the moment it almost if we don't stop to think about it it feels like the right response so we see a lot of people panicking whether it's with i mean the absurdness of the toilet paper as though like i mean i don't know if people were just pooping way more (laughs) during the pandemic but like the paper towels but really what was happening is people see someone else doing it and then they panic the scarcity mindset sets in right yeah i heard an interesting theory on the toilet paper thing and that was that toilet paper because it's large you know it takes up so much shelf space in the store that Mm. you only have to like when people went to the store to stock up and they just grab some of the toilet paper they can't stock that many individual items on the shelf so it looked like it was all gone and that instilled in people this fear that there was a run on toilet paper and that just accelerated the whole thing because if you think about it if we're going into lockdown and you know into some kind of you know self-protection mode like toilet paper isn't the first i mean yeah it's important but it's like that's not the thing. There's you know? a shower right there. Yes. Right. If I really have to figure this out, I'll yeah. right. And even Wuhan didn't run out of water. Like so, you you yeah. we don't. I, I guess the point I'm I'm bringing up here is we tend not to look at things rationally, and I think a big part of that is because what you're saying, Rich, we we just assume things are the way they are today, and so thus they'll likely be that way tomorrow. But at some point, it's not linear, and and we might be cut off from a a supply chain and all of a sudden you need ibuprofen or whatever and it doesn't exist or you need masks and they don't exist at least not here because china decides they need them Mm -hmm. all right well we've got uh some questions before we get to them though there's a few things i want to talk about uh remember we did a podcast with uh uh tommy wood and and dr saladino and we had uh chris sitting in the corner over here chris kelly i don't know if you remember him or have i don't know if you've connected with him at all uh he um he, he runs a company called MBT. I love him. He's a great guy. He said the biggest thing he got out of that podcast, and it was you just mentioned it in passing, is that you sle- you sleep outdoors. I don't know if that you're still yeah. doing that, but he's been doing it now. So oh, yeah. he, he has he, he and his family, <laughs> he and his wife both sleep separately outdoors now, and uh-huh. they have this really nice house up in Santa Cruz. He's like a uh, a, a long distance biker, like he competes mm-hmm. in races and stuff. And he said the the he's done a bunch of things to improve his sleep, but that is the main thing that has improved his sleep. Best. That's all. Yeah. You still do it. I have I a hammock. Still do. <laughs> I've been sleeping outdoors in a tent coming up on probably two years at this point, maybe even longer. I can't remember when I started. Oh wow! Every night, yeah. It's and do, do you have like a mattress? What's what's the setup so, like? Yeah, I, I have a relatively large tent, and I put like a twin mattress in there, so I'm not sleeping on the ground or anything mm-hmm. like that. Okay. Um, and there's just something about that that makes that just enhances the restfulness of that experience and i wake up feeling better than i do when i'm indoors or in air conditioning or whatnot like Mm. under the stars the cool air we live in los angeles the desert even in the summertime it cools down at night and get kind of cold at night and this all began because um my wife likes the bedroom warm and i like it cold and if the 
bedroom is too warm, like I just don't sleep well yeah, at night. And same. I have like a high like threshold for this. So I'll think it's boiling hot and she's under all the covers. And uh-huh. we it was just like this like war that would go on, not war, but like, like no matter, like it just wouldn't, it was never right for her and it was never right for me. So we were both not getting optimal sleep and we have a flat roof and a couple of years ago, um, well, we've done this over the years, like just for the kids, we'll, we'll get like bean bags and mattresses out on the flat roof and we'll project movies on this wall that we have okay. and just sleep, you know, kind of like camp out on the roof. And a couple of years ago we did that. Um, and I just woke up the next morning and just felt so amazing. I was like, that's the best night of sleep that I've had. And I'm just going to start sleeping on the roof. And I did, <laughs> but then you wake up, you got the condensation on you and you're all wet and all that kind of thing. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. well, I guess I'll get a tent. And Julie's like, okay, have fun, you know? <laughs> and it just began there. And now I just, I prefer it. Yeah. Like I get a great night's sleep. Everybody thinks it's a referendum on my marriage. I've been married, I've been with my wife for, you know, over 20 years. Yeah. We have a great marriage. That's we proje- have a, that's we have a very healthy, you, yeah, like sex life and all of that's fine. But I just find that the peace and restfulness that I get from sleeping outdoors really enhances the quality of my life. And I've just continued to do it. And I think on the subject of, of minimalism, it's also been a very interesting practice in my attachment to material things and the psychology around that. You think, yes. well, if you're sleeping in a tent, you must be a loser, you know? Yeah. But I found that not only do I prefer it, it's changed my relationship to things in very, you know, in in certain respects, kind of a stoic practice. Like if everything just were to get taken away from me, if I was to lose like all the largesse in my life and everything everything went terribly awry Mm -hmm. and I lost everything, I can still sleep in a tent and I'm cool with that. Like, and that's reframed my relationship to materialism in a, in a, in a really profound way. Mm. Yeah. yeah, there's, because the opposite is, if you need everything to be perfect, you're always going to be the victim of discontent. Yes. Yeah. And and so, there's something pithy there, Sean. I had a funny, a funny that. thing happen. I was, uh, I made a video about like why I sleep in a tent. Oh, I've talked about it on that. my podcast. Like show notes. It was a while ago, and I, I remember I was traveling, I was in New York City for something, and I was checking into this hotel, um, now it's hard for me to like sleep in hotel rooms and stuff yeah. like that because mm. I'm so used to sleeping outdoors. But anyway, I'm checking into this hotel and the woman who's like checking me in, she she looks at she's like checking me in, she looks at me and she's checking me in, she goes, I think we might be able to put a tent on the roof for you if you really need it. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Like she knew. Like, yeah. That is really cool. Well, there, there's something. It'd be even funnier if it, if it wasn't Rich, it was a guy that looked like Rich. Yeah. Oh, right. Oh, no. <laughs> You're like, what are you talking about? There's something about uh when everything, when you live a comfortable life, you become really uncomfortable. Mm. And uh, what I'm hearing you say is, yeah, it's although sleeping outside is comfortable, but constantly cushioning your life, like you become acclimated to that comfort mm-hmm. and doesn't really give you a, a chance to grow beyond that, I guess. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or that, you know, your happiness is somehow related to what your bedroom looks like. Like, look, you mm. want to be comfortable and sure. I, I'm not against nice things. But um, I've realized that, you know, it decouples those things. Mm-hmm. Like, I know that, like, how I feel about myself is not related to the, what the room looks like that yeah. I'm sleeping in. Right. Yeah. And, and, uh, and there's another fascinating thing, you know, the layer of that, if it, with respect to minimalism, it's sort of 
when you strip something down to its essence, the bones are the beauty. And there's there's a beauty when we look at like like minimalissimo, which is uh, you know a beautiful blog of architecture, and and they are all like really stripped down to the, to the essence. Mm-hmm. They're never like heavily decorated with, mm-hmm. with with stuff. And there's an elegance within simplicity that we we don't see when we just like fill a space with accoutrements right. and tchotchkes. Yeah. I have uh, my tent now is sitting right next to this shipping container that is my office. Uh-huh. Like that's like next to our house. Um, so you know, it's just hilarious that like I sleep in a tent and like I spend all day in a shipping container, like where I sit at my desk and, and like do my work. And and I have a beautiful home, you know, yeah. it's in a beautiful place. But that's the other thing. It's like, well, if it all goes away, like, you know, a shipping container and a tent and I'm, I'm, pretty, much, good. I'm pretty much good. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a heck of a backup plan. Uh, all right. Well, let's talk about uh, we already touched on this earlier, but with exercise and, and, and for you training, what what does a day look like if you are training for a particular goal for you? I mean, it, it, it depends on what I'm training for, but I would say in general. Are you training for something now? No, because there's no races. Right. You know, I'm just, I'm training for life right now. And I'm training mm-hmm. just to, to be fit. I have a little bit of a back injury, so I can't run at the moment and all the pools are closed. So mm-hmm. I've been spending more time on my bike than I have in the past couple of years. And that's been fun. But, you know, my typical day, I wake up, I don't set an alarm, um, but I usually wake up around 6, 6.30, um, get up, drink some water, have a little bit of coffee. Then I do 20 minutes of meditation followed by um, some journaling, like morning pages out of The Artist's Way. And then I go out and train for a couple hours. Um, that's how I start pretty much every single day. I do my best to never schedule any anything, no calls, no meetings, nothing. Um, before noon, I made an exception today. So, like, <laughs> like I don't always we're adhere to that because we we're, we start at 10 a.m. today. But um, yeah, so I try to adhere to that rule, and I and I, you know, I, I'm privileged to be able to do that. Not everybody can make that decision, but because I work for, sure. for myself, I've kind of used that as a benchmark. Um, and then afternoons, because I find like I do my best work in the morning, whether it's writing or training, like that's when I feel the best and mm-hmm. I'm the most productive. So I try to be very protective of the of those hours. Afternoon is for emails and Zoom calls and all the all the like mm-hmm. and podcast interviews and stuff like that. Yeah. Gotcha. Do you, do you take any naps at all during the day? Ever? Not a huge napper. Like once I'm up, I'm up. But I go to bed at nine o'clock yeah. every night. I'm okay. I'm early to bed. Now your training involves running, swimming, biking, mm-hmm. all of the above. Some like ab, you know, like core work at home too. You know, okay. the gyms are closed now, so mm-hmm. I went to get some home gym equipment too, and I couldn't find any, anything anywhere. Yeah, that's you what I, I you heard. You can't buy it anywhere, dude. I ordered uh, some resistance bands, the ones that you put the handles on uh-huh. each side of them. I have a bunch of those, and yeah. it took me like I don't know, it took me six weeks to get them, but I finally got them. Mm-hmm. And uh, between that and then I got a bike at home. Uh, state it's a Peloton. Between that and the Peloton, I get I'm getting some pretty awesome workouts. Yeah, I mean the resistance bands. What's nice is like you can link them all together and you can get some really good right. resistance on those. Yeah. But uh, there's some stuff on YouTube that you can. There's so much that you can do at home. Yeah, and that's another accelerant. Like who's going to go back to the gym? You know, people that are super into like working out have figured out a home routine that's functional mm-hmm. so are you going to go back to, and pay money to go to you know it'll be interesting to see how well, that, you know it's interesting that works. so the gym that my wife and i belong to 
she loves to go for the classes, like the yoga classes and stuff. Uh-huh. And that's why I will go mostly too, is like to get to do some of the classes. Right. Although the classes that I do, cause I'm not really into yoga, although I probably should be, but, uh, the classes that I do, I found like I can find those on YouTube and do them at home, but I could see, I mean like my wife, I know she'll start going back to the gym because she's got a couple of yoga instructors. Mm-hmm. She really likes to go and take their classes, mm-hmm. but you're right. It's going to change though. There, there will be some, you take my my homegirl Robin's class on Peloton. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Best. Yeah, Robin's good. I like Jess King. Um, yeah, there's there's a yeah there's a couple of instructors I my go tos. Cool. Yeah. Let's talk about. Um, so you've been plant based for 13 years now. Mm-hmm. I, I noticed you you often use the term plant based instead of vegan, and I think they're often used interchangeably by us uh, lay people. But I think you, you tend to make a distinction between the two. Is that right? Or is there a specific reason you, you say plant-based? I thought he said plant-based to not be offensive. Well, I think <laughs> there's a lot I mean, lot I'm not of, offended by the yeah. word vegan. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. The word vegan is defined differently for different people. Okay. I would say oh. in general, you know, there's a, there's a sliding scale of what vegan means depending upon who you're talking to. When you say plant-based, that generally refers simply to nutrition, Mm. um, what kind of foods that you're eating, foods that are plant-based. Veganism is more of a philosophy Mm -hmm. that- The clothes you're wearing. Speaks to, yeah, yeah, it's it's more of a, it's a comprehensive um, perspective on living a um, harm-free life. So that applies to the clothes that you're wearing, the products that you buy, that, you know, everything, there's animal products and all kinds of things. And it's more, um, you know, it's a, it comes from the typical definition derives more from a sensitivity to, um, to animal life and and a reduction of suffering. Right. Um, I consider myself vegan. Uh I eat a plant-based diet. Which falls under um, that umbrella. Of yeah, vegans. and I think, mm-hmm. you know, I, I tend to, you know, choose my words carefully depending upon who I'm speaking to. I think the word, when I started this, uh-huh. the word vegan was perceived much more pejoratively than it is now. Oh, but I still think it's a, it's a loaded term because it's so heavily politicized. And yeah. so my whole thing is trying to get people excited about taking care of themselves mm-hmm. and to figure out what they're, entry point is to you know living more authentically and for some it's it's sensitivity to the environment for some it's sensitivity to the animals and for some it's just personal health and well-being mm-hmm. um, veganism can apply to all of those things plant-based tends to focus more on the nutrition and health components of this mm. um, but I think now veganism has has gone you know much more mainstream than when I was doing this. Mm. And uh, there's an openness and a receptivity to these ideas that, that didn't exist when I, when I yeah. began. Yeah, of course the word's not offensive. But when I was vegan for a year uh-huh. on that bet, uh-huh. I would say I was vegan. And some people were like, like they're just rolling their eyes. Uh-huh. And then they'd be like, oh, well, you, your belt looks like it's le-. I mean, it was like it was this not offensive term, but it was subversive. Yeah, and, and what's weird about that is when, when people start making those those sort of distinctions, like yeah. what they're really doing—it's their own insecurities. Yeah, they're they're bringing it's bringing their insecurities to the surface. Yeah. Well, it's it, it's it makes people defensive because it feels like you're coming from a place of superiority and mm-hmm. judgment of others. And I've yeah. never felt that from you ever. Me neither. And, and yeah. um, you know, we've had a bunch of conversations, whether it's on the podcast or off, and um, yeah, I've never felt like. 
there i felt like the way you're living is congruent with who you want to be but it's also not a judgment on other people's lifestyles no i'm not here to sit in judgment of of anybody's lifestyle choices and um i don't think that i'm superior to anybody by any stretch of the imagination and i really steer clear of trying to giving give anybody advice and those are um, perspectives that I learned in 12-step and mm. Alcoholics Anonymous because that whole environment and culture is about sharing your experience. It's not about telling people what to do or not to do. Mm. You share your experience. And so that's what I endeavor to do with the podcast and the writing and everything that I do. I'm just here to share my experience. Just so you know, I do think you're superior. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> to so, me at least trust me I'm, not. I'm, I'm interested in these 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 two terms i try to make a distinction uh about them in our new book but lifespan versus health span i think too often we 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 think in terms of lifespan like maybe even longevity mm-hmm. uh but a, a mediocre long life you know if, is is not preferable to a attenuated healthy life in a way right so i think you maybe maybe learned that around age 40 when you're like you know i have life but do i have health Mm -hmm. and if i if i want to and the the irony here is by making some healthy choices you may also extend your life over Mm -hmm. a period of time yeah i think that that we conflate lifespan with health span and it's important to distinguish the two it's about you know, health span is about the vitality that you bring into your years. Like who wants to live to be 100 if from age 75 to 100, you're essentially infirm. And right now we're in the midst of an unspeakable healthcare crisis where people are debilitated beginning around, you know, the age 40 yeah. with diabetes and obesity and all the chronic lifestyle ailments that render people uh, unable to enjoy life to the extent that they should be able to. So what we need to do is solve those problems. You know, if you live to 100, if you live to 80, if you live to 75, let's just make sure that those years are infused with joy and mobility and, you know, a vivaciousness for life. And we can't do that if we're in wheelchairs or our feet are getting amputated or we're so obese that we can't get off the couch and we're just watching reality TV or the news cycle all day. Yeah. 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 The, um, we talked earlier about you being good at saying no, which you said no to. (laughs) (laughs) And so meta and, I have one example for you. You have an uh, aggressive email responder, auto response. Uh, yeah. So let's talk about this. Uh, I, I emailed it's Rich. Not very to, effective, though. Well, <laughs> uh, well, I emailed Rich. I mean, I, you've always had different iterations of, of an email responder, which tend to drive me crazy. I don't like email auto responders in general. But uh, <laughs> hi, your email is so important to me. <laughs> I'm never gonna read it, and I probably won't ever get back. <laughs> yeah. Actually, his so his new one doesn't even have a body to the email. Mm-hmm. It just has it responds to whatever your title is. And it says this email will not be read. <laughs> I don't even know that I knew that that was what I was love getting that. responded. Yeah, it said email blackout. This e- your email and then the title yeah. will not be read. Oh wow! And that's it. There's not even a body to the email. And I'm like, I like this. This is effective. Yeah. Um. Now you not everyone can do that, and I assume you have to have someone else who who can sort through some things. If it's mm-hmm. like a media appearance or something like that. Yeah. Thankfully, I had your phone number. I just texted you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> now but, my texts are like email. 
Right. Oh. right. But you know when you read a text, you can't mark it as unread. That, why and not? It's like that if drives I'm, me crazy. If I, I know, right? And yeah. if I don't respond to that text in the moment, it's never getting responded yeah. to. Because now I get, now, because probably as a byproduct of that email autoresponder, uh-huh. I get tons of text messages and I can't keep up with that now. Yeah. And I just feel like a bad person, you know? Because like I, <laughs> I you know I want to be the person who gets back to everybody and it's just it's not it really wears on me emotionally yeah, to same. not be able to do that. You're defending you know? your time, you're defending your energy. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's like I look at Derek Sivers, he's probably the guy who'll get back to you eventually. But, well, almost certainly. I mean, did you yeah. see his experiment this year? Yes. He responded to 6,000 emails. And, and I a, like yeah, want to pass period. out just thinking about responding to 6,000 emails. I yeah. some very high-powered CEO type people. Yeah. Um, and every time that I email them, they email me back within like five minutes. Yeah. You know, and it's like, wow. so it's either that like, mentality of just responding immediately to everything to stay on top of it, mm. or it just becomes this snowball effect where it's just, there's no way you're ever gonna get to it, yeah. you know? And look, this is a, this is a you know, crisis of, of affluence, you know what I mean? Like I get a lot of emails and that's awesome and cool, but- It's a good problem. At have, what, yeah, it's like, I'm, I don't wanna be somebody who comes off as complaining about that. It's just that, there's a choice, like, are you gonna spend all day responding to emails? And you're under this impression that if you respond to all of them, that you'll get on top of it. But responding just creates more, more, yes. you know? And it just, it never goes away. And it's yeah. this descent into some kind of, you know, psychological hell that occurs. You know, totally it's, so. I wait about 10 to 14 days to respond because then they expect me, when they respond back right away, they know know it's about 10 or 14 days that I'm gonna respond again. I use a tool for this, uh, Boomerang. Are you familiar with Boomerang? It's a a little app that plugs into Gmail, basically. And uh, so right in there, if I get a message from someone, I can respond to it right now, but say, send it two weeks from today or 10 days from today. And, or I can just boomerang their message where uh, someone emailed me and I'm like, I can't deal with this until Monday. So I just click boomerang for two days and it will come back to me. Um, now you can overdo that obviously and keep postponing work or whatever right. or, or necessary things to respond to. And I find I do that occasionally. But most of the time I'm able to use it in a way where I'm, I postpone something so it slows down the mm. conversation. Mm. Yeah, the delayed response is downright maniacal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I could see that. So when it res- when it auto responds, this message will not be read. Mm-hmm. Is that is it you truly like have emails like to like your email set up to block other emails or is that just like an auto responder to like give them the proper expectation of probably not going to read this. Are we on the record? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's only a deposition. It's only it's yeah. only 5,000 uh, uh-huh. pa- Patreon fans. Yeah. So <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, the truth is like those emails still end up in my email box. Okay, okay. Um, and I probably read them. I just try to create a, a, an expectation that I might I love not it. get back to people. I think it's great. And then I have a private email that only a few people know about. Yeah. Do you want to share that? Well, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sean, put that in the show notes. Uh, Let's talk about staying healthy with kids. You you have four of them. They all grew up with you, and and it's 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 uh, your oldest is 25. 25. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. Wow. I'm just laughing at your parenthetical. Oh yeah, yeah. So a couple of weeks ago. Ella sneezed in my mouth. I was reading her a story at bedtime. And like, she looks over at me. Like, no, she has the look on her face. She just looks over. I'm reading her the story. And she looks over. At me. 
And I'm like, what's wrong with her face? I'll keep reading. All of a sudden, she just sne- like doesn't try to intentionally, but uh. this is something that happens all the time. And and so ever since um, first becoming a a, a parent, oh. um, you know, Ella was one when I met her, and um, I have gotten sick more frequently because she gets sick all the time from all the kids she's around and stuff, and uh, it's. It's a fascinating thing. So how did you stay healthy raising four kids? I mean, it's inevitable. You're just going to get colds and stuff, right? Yeah, when you're a parent, you're, you're, your kids are, I mean, they come home from school and with their friends. I mean, they're they're just brimming with all kinds of disease. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So yeah, you end up getting you, you end up getting sick a little bit more. Yeah. yeah. Um, I got hand, foot, and mouth disease getting in 2017. Oh, you did? It yeah. ruined our Washington, D.C. event. You I know, right? more than anybody. But uh, no, I mean, like, that's the thing. In, until, until I met Ella- and you had COVID, <laughs> right? You're I, just yeah. like, actually, I had COVID. We should, get, we should just put you in a box and ship you off to the NIH <laughs> to be studied. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe they'll have some sort of vaccine yeah. or some pr- private vaccine for oh me. That'd be great. No, the thing is, until I met Ella, I never like I was almost never sick. In fact, there was this a, is true. There was a seven year period where I got sick once. Yeah. And then I meet Ella, and all of a sudden she's coughing and sneezing in my direction all the mm. time, and. Yeah, I don't know. The hand, foot, and mouth. Is, I thought that went away in the 1800s, but apparently not. <laughs> yeah, I know. Isn't that an archaic disease? It's, it's, it's a weird one. It sounds archaic, right? Hand, foot, and mouth? What right. You, and it, you... it sounds like if you get it, you're living your life horribly wrong in some way. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> like you're putting someone else's foot in your mouth. <laughs> Or their hands. What did you say about ele- uh, licking the elevator or oh, something? So when we first moved into our, our uh, apartment complex, the very first day, we go out to the elevator. We're moving some stuff in, and I she runs. You know, she likes to tear through the hallways running. She was four at the time, I guess, and and she runs around the corner. And so I, I come around the corner and. I asked her to hit the button when she was running, and I go up, and she's just li- tonguing that button, just tonguing it. Kids eat the darndest French things. kissing it. And I'm like, no wonder I'm getting sick. You're licking the thing that everyone is touching. Uh, anyway, Ooh. I don't know. Um, yeah, it, it, there is a conversation to be had about immune systems, because I do have a, I, I have a really healthy immune system, apparently, because all three of us, uh, me and Bex and Ella went went through COVID. You know, uh, we didn't test uh, Ella, but uh, she obviously had it because she even had symptoms. They were very mild symptoms, though. Mm-hmm. She coughed f- for about a day. Uh, Bex had fatigue for a few days and lost her sense of smell and uh, a few other things. Basically, had a cold for a few days. I had a fever for like eight days, maybe even longer. Mm. But it wasn't. I wasn't in bed. Like I was still living my life mm-hmm. like normal. Well. normal quarantine you know i was in the house working and stuff but um yeah there is a conversation to be had because i i I saw i mean rich is very tan because he spends a lot of time outdoors Mm -hmm. even sleeps outdoors yeah um but uh most most of us are vitamin d deficient it's something like 59 percent of americans are deficient and they're saying that 84 percent of People who have COVID, severe COVID symptoms in the hospital are deficient in vitamin D. Now, I don't know about the correlation there. Does COVID cause a vitamin D deficiency or is it the other way around? I I don't really know. But 
uh, that's a, a vital nutrient that we just don't spend any, any time even thinking about. Yeah, 100%. Uh, Rhonda Patrick was talking about that with Joe Rogan recently on the podcast. And, and even though I'm outdoors and in the sun quite a bit, I, you know, I'm supplementing with vitamin D, mm. um, among some other things. And I think it goes back to this conversation about doing everything that we can to buttress our immune systems in this challenging moment. Uh, I think what is interesting, and perhaps another conversation that we're not really having, is the importance of maintaining diversity in our environments for the purposes of having a robust microbiome. Like our gut microbiome mm -hmm. is where essentially our, our immune system rests. Something mm -hmm. like, yeah. I don't know, 70 to 90% of our immune system function mm -hmm. is dictated by our microbiome. Wow. Right? And a healthy microbiome is one in which there is a diversity of microorganisms. We get these from the plants that we eat, the foods that we eat, the air that we breathe, what we expose ourselves to. And we all know that um, our immune systems are more robust when we're exposed to like many low-grade pathogens in the world. So when you're, when Ella is licking the button on the, on the it's almost like, a, an instinctual thing like a kid a kid knows in order to develop their they don't know consciously but right. like in order to develop a robust immune system you have to expose yourself to lots of things yes right mm -hmm. and now we're in this moment where we're sanitizing everything we're avoiding right. contact with other human beings we're sequestered in our homes we're washing our hands a hundred times a day mm -hmm. we're we're putting you know purell on you know we're every oh. you know like some people are are gargling bleach and Lysol, God forbid. Oh my God, yeah, <laughs> injecting it inside yeah, themselves, like, yeah. So <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> what's interesting is how is this gonna, like this is a short-term solution that potentially creates a longer-term problem. Mm, and yeah. I think makes us weaker in our response to the world in an era in which you know, superbugs are being bred by, you know, the antibiotic laden, you know, cattle that people are eating and all the other mm -hmm. things that are happening with agriculture. And I think, you know, I'm concerned about what that looks like down the line. Yeah. Of course, we have yeah. to be doing this right now because there's an immediate threat. Um, but it is important to make sure that that our microbiome is healthy. And part of that is like just, you know, we're in the same room, just being in the presence of other human beings is yeah. contributing to that, like everything that we do. And in a broader sense, it's because we're not separated from the world. We are part of the world. We yes. are one organism, right? Mm. And when we remove ourselves from the flow of life, I think that, you know, we're, we're potentially creating a harm that we're not looking at yet. Yeah. I'm curious, do you, I was listening to Rogan uh -huh. and he was talking about the NAD injections. Uh -huh. Do you, do you guys take NAD? No, no. I don't. I mean, I've had yeah. David Sinclair on my podcast twice. That's where that comes from. And Joe's had him on. Mm. So NAD, there's all these supplements, sort of longevity boosting yeah. supplements. Um, I think that there still remains to be, there remain, science remains there's to be done. There's still not science like on that, yeah. yeah. I'm just curious. And maybe there will be some yeah. in the yeah. not too distant yeah. future. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm hopeful for for certain things like that. It seems a bit quixotic to me to to think that we can sort of supplement our way to health mm -hmm. because by definition, supplements should supplement the things we do to make us healthy, mm -hmm. right? But but when we don't get me wrong, I mean there are medical treatments that are necessary for for people and medicines yeah. and and things that will help, but quite often. We're, we're covering up something, you know? It's like the hangover cure. Well, the real hangover cure is to not, not get drunk. drunk. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah. I well, imagine it, it plays on our reptilian brain desire for these quick fixes, right? Like, oh, I'll take NAD, but you know, I'm going to eat at Wendy's, or you know what I mean? Like, yeah. we just want to do that thing and think that we've taken care of stuff without actually doing the the, the real work. Like, yeah. supplements are the cherry on top of the sundae, you right? Know? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, there's been a lot of protesting during during uh, COVID, and you know, it's been fascinating because. Well, I think a lot of the protests are necessary, and we did a race relations podcast with uh, T.K. Coleman, and we, we talked about the difference between uh, protesting and rioting. I would also add looting in there. I think that's a third thing. It's actually different from, from – I think looting is not helpful at all. I, I think rioting could potentially be helpful, even though I, I condemn it uh, for various reasons, and we talked to T.K. about that. But we're also protesting. We're, we're gathering around people, right? I went to a protest in West Hollywood and brought Ella there. We wore our masks and stuff, but uh, we were around a ton of people. Now, we were fine because we have the antibodies. For how long we have them, I don't know. Can we recontract it? Probably not, but who knows for sure. And and But I think we're probably going to see spikes in, in cases now. Mm. And um, I, I, I don't know what to think about that because I'm, I'm very much a a middle of the road sort of person with most things, including this. Like I, th- at the very beginning, I thought it was a very big deal. I think we may have swung the pendulum too far and overreacted. And maybe that overreaction was actually necessary for a period of time. But now we're somewhere in the middle of that. And what I'm actually seeing is the pendulum swinging back really, really quickly. And not just with the protests. I went, I was in Nashville uh, yesterday and I went into a restaurant. It was just open it was a bit eerie because the people serving had masks on but it was it was like normal i got an airplane yesterday and the airplane was full yeah that's crazy yeah human beings are hilarious right you know it's so weird and i think what's confusing is we really don't know what the goalposts are here right because the information keeps changing i remember a couple weeks ago watching some of those viral videos of people partying at Lake of the Ozarks and just being outraged that somebody could do that. Like, how could you be out like with all those people in the middle of this pandemic? Mm-hmm. Flash forward to a week ago, seeing those drone shots over Hollywood Boulevard right out here, thousands of people in the street, yeah. and my heart being uplifted by that, yeah. which reveals my cognitive bias. Right. It is insane that those two things could coexist at the same time. Mm. And here we are. Undoubtedly, we're going to see a crazy spike mm-hmm. in cases. I, would think I, I, so, I don't yeah. know how 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 that couldn't be the case. Right. I'm actually shocked but, we haven't seen more of a spike yet. Yeah, I think it, you know, in another week or yeah. two, right? We're going to see it. There's a little lag. Yeah, we, we are. And then and there's discussion like, oh, we're 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 going into the second wave. We're not going into the second wave. The first wave hasn't ended yet. We're still in the first mm. wave. We were kind of reaching a bit of a plateau, but now with everyone taking to the streets, we're going to see. We're inevitably we're going to see a spike, and I think. On top of that, we have ever ch- the tectonic plates of of what's safe and what isn't are constantly changing. This debate about masks and and this conversation around how we contract this, yeah, I'm, I'm not convinced that we still have a grip on what that is. And right. so, short of firm and fast rules about how this whole disease works, we're left in this confusing liminal state mm-hmm. that I think is dividing people 
because of that confusion. Like yeah. we're seeing, like you're in the South and people are acting like it's fine. And, and you know, here in California, there's masks everywhere. You can't go into a store without a mask. Um, it's it's all very, very strange. Mm-hmm. And how is this gonna play out? Like, I don't know. Yeah, that's or, the most frustrating part about this whole thing is there's no information that you can go to and be like, this is the correct information that you need to go by. It's like, Everything is, it's all over the spectrum. It's crazy. And layer on top of that, the weaponization of social media and yeah. the politicization. Like there used to be certain things that weren't politicized. Right. Now everything is politicized. Yeah. Every single thing is a hot potato that gets co-opted by the political parties to prove a point. Mm-hmm. And that just foments additional confusion and, and, and makes the, you know, figuring out like how to move forward even more confusing. Yeah. And it's dividing people. Yeah. And my biggest fear and concern in like a, in a global meta sense is how do we see our, our way forward as a society? How can we ever come together again and unite and, and kind of agree upon a certain, you know, operating procedure for how we're going to function as a society. And I think that is, you know, potentially the undoing of, of all of this. And I have grave, you know, concern and worry about that. Yeah. I think the reason that we're divided is because we go, it goes back to that, that pill. I want the pill, but here it's, I want the binary answer. Mm. It's either you're and you're a COVID denier or you are a, um, I don't know, a, whatever the opposite of, uh, of that is and so the but the truth is that like we, we're as we're moving as we're maneuvering through this more and more questions begin to appear and i think we we often are, are in denial about well because my perspective is this binary i can't even concede this one or two point like mm-hmm. i was i was wrong about this early on or um I've changed my mind based on new evidence, but ultimately, I think the way that we get through this and we don't we don't divide ourselves into oblivion is by being willing to accept new evidence as it appears. Being teachable. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Why is it so hard to admit when you got it wrong, and then we hate being wrong? Yeah, we hate. I guess we we hate being wrong. <laughs> well, um, I think the answer is congru. We yeah. we want to be congruent. I think maybe that's the key to enlightenment is like being able to accept that you can be wrong. Mm. It's like, cause I remember up until, I don't even know what age it was before I was like, Oh no, I don't know everything. In fact, I had to be willing to constantly relearn things. And that has made life so much better, more valuable, less friction. Um, instead of like digging my heels into me like, no, this is the way it is. And then when you're not willing to admit you're wrong, you start to pull in information that you know affirms whatever it is you believe in and then and then you project that information to prove that this is why i'm right yeah yeah i love that be teachable that's great we got some surprise questions here how can one be a minimalist when there's always the urge to accumulate more gear or tech for hobbies and athletic endeavors well who wrote who asked that am am they haven't bought all our books and watched a documentary and read all of our blog. <laughs> they must consume our content. <laughs> Real simple, I am. <laughs> yeah. Well, I imagine some of the things you do, it would be easy to get bogged down in, in, in gear. I think quite often we confuse the the pencil for the writing, yeah. so to speak. But with, with running, for example, there's plenty of running gear you can go out and buy. Most of it's probably not going to make you a better runner. 
hundred percent. I mean, everybody can go out and run. I don't care if you're wearing, you know, Chuck Taylors or Jack Purcell's, like start where you're at. Mm -hmm. It's so funny. Like I work so hard to put out thoughtful content that, you know, I put a lot of intention into and I'm trying to grapple with big ideas and having conversations that matter. And then I'll get the comments and the questions are like, what's that watch that you're wearing? Mm -hmm. Are you wearing two watches? What's that orange thing on your wrist? Like yeah. it's all about the gadgets mm -hmm. and the gear. And that goes back to our reptilian brain. Like what? Oh, the answer lies in that thing that's on his wrist, you yeah. know? And I just, I, I, I refuse to like answer those questions. It's like, it's not about that, you know? It's about connecting with yourself and finding meaning in that and then figuring out a way to express that. The gear, mm -hmm. this is like the NAD supplement. Like mm -hmm. it's fine, it's cool. I like having a GPS watch that gives me data on my training performance and that's helpful to me. But mm -hmm. the minute you start focusing on those things over the why behind what you're doing, mm -hmm. then I think you lose, you know, you, you're losing the point of the whole endeavor. Yeah, it's like you have to focus on the journey first and then once you start the journey, then you can kind of pull in things that augment the journey. Yeah, and I think we've talked about this perhaps in a past podcast together. I, I think what happens is people have a desire to make a change in their life. Like let's use the example of like, I wanna run a marathon, right? So mm -hmm. they're like, I wanna run a marathon. So then they go online and they seek out the people that are running marathons or who they can learn from. Mm -hmm. um, and they quickly you know, get caught up in like, trying to find the best pair of running shoes and I need the heart rate monitor and the strap and they'll spend months, you know, yeah. like evaluating the pros and cons of this shoe over that shoe. Meanwhile, they ain't running. You yeah, know, it's, it's an analysis paralysis. It's yeah. consumerism. Ensues, this is what, exactly yeah. what consumerism does, right? It's it's uh, you can have someone who spends three months looking like they can run a marathon in terms of they have the accoutrements to to do it, but they haven't they haven't put in their first step yet mm. and that's, there's something powerful as a metaphor there as well like you know buying the running shoes isn't an actual step right mm. uh, and and i think that's where we get caught up ryan and i have the same thing in fact we did an episode a podcast episode about our favorite brands but we did this intentionally because so many people asked those questions right. and every time i i would answer the question with something about how hey just because a pair of shoes fits me doesn't mean they will fit you just because a particular shirt fits me doesn't mean it will fit you because a watch is appropriate for rich doesn't mean it's going to be appropriate for you it doesn't mean it's going to going to change your habits and in fact many of these things can get in the way if we're not careful mm -hmm. And to answer the question specifically, I mean, the person is saying, how do I, you know, how do I become more minimal when it's all about these other things? Well, the answer to that is about tuning out the noise, right? Like it's mm -hmm. about listening to yourself and trying to find a way to detach or create a healthy boundary between the messaging that you see out in the world, whether it's television commercials or billboards or, or whatever, and turning that inquiry in on yourself to get clarity on what it is that you want to do and to realize that that you are being manipulated and that you don't actually need these things mm -hmm. to express whatever it is inside of you that you're trying to breathe life into. I love that. You know, it's interesting. I when you first when I first saw you I was like that's a great t-shirt that Rich is wearing. I wonder, I wonder what brand that T-shirt is. I seriously you like. You know what? I put this. You're, you're I think this the is same the same T-shirt. I, I would imagine this is the same T-shirt I wore the first time I did your podcast it might be, many years ago because I've had this T-shirt forever. <laughs> and I was like, "Well, I'm going to see the minimalist, so I'm putting the uniform. Got to put on. the uniform on. But no, it's it's a little thinner. I like how it sits around <laughs> yeah. your neck. And like, I quickly had to be like, 
Oh, like that t-shirt looks really good on Rich. <laughs> like me uh, trying to find a different t-shirt that looks better on me is probably a futile experiment. But I'm only saying that because as one of the minimalists, I still want to buy stuff. And I still look at stuff and I'm like, oh, that might look good on me. And uh, I do exactly what you're talking about is I take that impulse and I examine that. And I'm like, what is that impulse? Right. Why am I feeling that? And if I did follow through with this impulse, what is it actually going to get me? And what's so comical about that is we're all wearing black t-shirts, right? right. You've got a perfectly fine black t-shirt on. Yeah, it looks yeah. great. And you're like, yeah, but that guy's black t-shirt is what I really <laughs> yeah, need. Yeah. You know what I mean? Totally. It's the fucking same thing. It yes. is. It is. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. <laughs> Harley has a question for us, Ryan. I'm going to be a grad student this fall. I just graduated in May, even though it doesn't really feel like it. I struggle with perfectionism and OCD tendencies. I've never been diagnosed, but I always feel the need to constantly clean and make all aspects of my life perfect. I know nothing will be perfect, but I feel like I'm still always striving for that. Do you guys have any advice in accepting imperfection and letting go of this desire to constantly perfect. Well, if your impulse is to clean, this is your moment. <laughs> <laughs> clean it up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Howie Mandel has been waiting for this his whole life. Right. Everybody's <laughs> on his level, you know? That's yeah. so good. Yeah. So so perfectionism um, and, and OCD. I mean, I'm someone who, who struggles with both of those, but are those things that creep up in your, in your life? Yeah, I, I certainly have an impulse for perfectionism and I have my, you know, mild OCD impulses. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that that what I do is I tell myself this lie, and the lie is only I know how to do it. Mm-hmm. I can do it best, and just let me do my thing and leave me alone, and I will control my universe from soup to nuts. Mm-hmm. And baked into that lie is that's how I'm going to be successful, that's how I've become successful, and that is how I will remain successful. Mm. And of course, none of this is true. And I've been challenged, like now as like my whole thing grows, like I have to let go of certain things in order to focus on the things that I can do. Like I'm like, you know, doing the minutia on my podcast. It's like, I don't, I'm not, you know, I'm not an audio engineer and an editor, like why am I doing this, right? And it's like this compulsiveness. Um, And it gets in the way of success. And the hard pill to swallow is to realize that, you know, that, that good, that, you know, perfection is the enemy of good and that progress is more important than perfection and moving forward. And for me, there's a letting go. Like I have to let people in to help me. And that challenges my introverted nature and my desire to control my environment because I think OCD and perfectionism is a control mechanism in the same way that, anorexia is a control mechanism. Mm-hmm. It's a dysfunction where some trauma is contributing to your need to have domain over your circumstances in a way that's unhealthy. Yeah. I feel like the more you can accept things being imperfect, the more perfect your life gets in a way. I mean, I totally agree. Perfectionism is a <clears throat> it's a sign of wanting to control. Mm-hmm. And I know that when I can release control, that's the best feeling in the world. Yeah. 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 And the way forward is to do stuff and put it out that, you know, that, that's not perfect. Right. Yeah. And to just be moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts on this. This is a little bit askew, but, you know, podcasting as a format, as a medium is very much, you know, Sam Harris talks about this. It's a, it's an experiment in thinking out loud, mm. right? We're, we're doing this, you know, 
unedited Mm -hmm. in real time. Mm -hmm. And in a moment where there's a heightened sensitivity to social and political issues, it's very trepidatious to do that, right? Yep, yep. There's a pressure to get it right, to not say the wrong thing, or you'll be canceled. Do yeah. you feel like that plays into how you host your podcast? Because in order for a podcast to be good, it has to be loose and casual. Yeah, yeah. And yet, if you're going to grapple with and address and, and discuss some of these important issues that we're struggling with as a country right now, mm-hmm. Um, there's a fear of not getting it right and then be, being held to account. Where does that fear come from, though? What, what do you think? I think it's. I think it's. It's. I mean, for me personally, I can only speak to my own, you know, yeah. personal experience. But it's like it's a desire to be on the right side of history. It's a desire to be sensitive to those, um, you know, people out, out out in the world right now who are really feeling the pain and the pressure of this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a desire to want to be part of the solution, not as the problem. It's a it's a you know desire to check my privilege. Like I've grappled with, okay, I'm a white privileged male. Mm-hmm. Like what is my voice in this? What is my responsibility? On mm-hmm. some level, I feel like I shouldn't say anything and I should take a back seat because this is not my moment to speak up. Like who wants to hear my voice from my point of view on this right now? Right, it's kind sure. of irrelevant. And yet the solution for all of us is going to require the voices of everybody. Yes. Yeah. And wanting to get that right in a situation that's so nuanced and fraught is a challenge. I think it's a tightrope walk yeah. to some extent. What what I love about podcasting is I feel like it's just, it just helps me practice having conversations, <laughs> and like I totally, uh, I I do choose my words carefully when we're you know going to publicly put something out, and so I'm certainly aware of that. But I think to your you know to your point of you're a white privileged male and you've got this platform and you know, what are you going to do? I think in that situation, the way that Josh and I look at it is, well, let's use our platform to give as many people a voice as possible that really need to be heard. Yeah. And that's probably the best thing we can do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, don't, I, I think the fear comes from, uh, part of it is a desire to be liked. Yeah. And, and it's total. I think that's I'm rational. A pa- I'm a pathological people pleaser. <laughs> same, same yeah. here. But here, here's the difference for me. I, I don't, <laughs> me too, man. I don't actually worry about anything that we, we say on the podcast because we're not cancelable. Like, I don't, I don't know how you could cancel us at this point. I mean, <laughs> are you challenging me, Josh? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, actually, I think that Ryan could do something that would definitely get us canceled. Um, uh, no, I, uh, I wait. Wait. So what you're saying is, is Ryan? I'm cancelable. <laughs> yeah, but Ryan Josh is, is not. totally cancelable. <laughs> well, if, what if Patreon decided that you know these guys, man, they're toxic. Yeah. They That's fine. Go. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, we we have. We, I, I I know all five thousand or so of them, and we would just set up a new right. platform, and and we would be fine. Well, now, I, here, here's an example though. We had Dave Rubin on the podcast recently, and we ended up not publishing it. Mm. He and I got to an argument on the phone about this, mm. and um, tell me more. Yeah, mm. I will, and. and because uh, here's the thing, and he he actually said like, well, that's you know, it's cowardly. You're not going to put that out there. So we recorded it. It was two days before all the rioting and looting and the George Floyd situation. So I think it was probably the day of the George Floyd. It was the Floyd. day of, like it was yeah. happening as we were recording. Yeah. Right. Okay. So we didn't really know about the George Floyd thing at that point. We obviously knew about. Yeah. And, and so there was a question that came up, and at the moment, Dave said that America is the least racist country in the history of the world. Yeah. And Ryan and I obviously just dis- disagreed with him right. on that topic. And I respect that he has that opinion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not afraid of publishing that. Uh, although I went back and you know considered the entire episode and many of the things that he said not only were out of step with the moment, 
I just felt like the conversation didn't shine a positive light on him. I, I and it didn't shine a positive light on the book that he was trying to promote, and uh, it wouldn't have added value to our audience. I felt like, and so we ended up we we decided. And, there are a bunch of conversations we haven't published before, but it's always been because, wow, I don't feel like this is us putting our best foot forward. It's not me afraid of being canceled. It's me being afraid of wasting the audience's time. Yeah, And and that's the difference. In fact, I wouldn't have a problem putting that episode out uh, on Patreon or have on a link if people actually wanted to go and listen to it on their own. I just don't want to bombard their inbox with it. Mm. And, and let people decide for themselves, you know, if they get any value from from the conversation. But ultimately, that's what it comes down to. The reason I say we're not cancelable because we're always thinking about how do we add value to the audience. Now, an individual person can cancel us. You know, uh, if you're a, a Patreon supporter or if you're a, a book buyer and you you, you whatever you decide I, I don't want to keep supporting these guys in any way, then that's fine. Um, but but I don't I'm not beholden to a particular corporation or something even even if like netflix for our next film we're like hey we're not gonna put this out okay like that's right. fine I, I i wish they would but like i i'm not worried about it yeah so so yeah being cancelable i guess to your point that's that's like losing all your sponsors losing your job losing so i so i, I do agree with you like it would be you can't cancel us because we're not beholden to an employer we're not beholden to sponsors it's it's just you and i doing our our best work and no one can stop us from doing that yeah 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 Yeah. i I mean i even look at someone like louis ck who i probably fall on the opposite side from a lot of people's opinions with with louis ck i saw that he apologized and i think in our society we should accept people's apologies because i also i don't know how we move on if we're not willing to accept someone's apology yeah i mean would you rather like because when i think about someone like louis ck i go to the like the terminus of like a racist for example let's say they were they were born into a racist family and that they were they they grew up that way and they did some very racist things and then at you know 25 years old they had this moment of enlightenment where they were like oh like what I've been doing is harmful mm-hmm. and I shouldn't do that anymore. And then they start to live their life differently. Mm-hmm. And then at 50 years old, someone pulls up all this racist stuff. I'm like, oh, look what he did when he was 25. It's like, do you not, would you rather him stayed a racist or would you rather him have learned from his mistakes? And I totally agree with you. Like we need to accept people's apologies because we want people to learn. We want people to grow. We want people to change. And by not accepting the apologies, it's hard to do that. Yeah. There needs to be an on-ramp um, to redemption, right? Yes, yes. And when I when I talk about cancel culture, it's it's it, yes, there is oh corporate sponsors, you know, let you go or whatever. But it, it, it's also like the internet mob deciding mm-hmm. that this is the person we're going to gang up on today. Yeah. And there's a lot of that right now, and I think there's a lot of toxicity and un- unhealthy behavior around that, like a lot of Schadenfreude. Like, who are we going after today? Yeah. yeah. I know you've had your friends with Jamie Kilstein. He's mm-hmm. talked about like his own personal experience with that. And you know, in the example of Louis C.K. or whoever, we do need to be able to provide like some principles around how or when that person is allowed to return to society on some level. And yeah. I think holding people to account for mistakes that they made a long time ago and myopically refusing to acknowledge the growth that they've endured you know, to get to a different place is is a toxic thing like we need to figure out how to redress that and um, you know allow people like it goes back to being teachable right like we have to allow people to grow and i think in this moment of black lives matter it's that's is 
it's as important as ever. Like yes. there's a lot of people grappling with how to communicate around this, how to move forward. There's a, you know, we're going to make mistakes. We're not going to get it right. But anybody who's who's endeavoring to improve, we have to we have to embrace that and support that if yeah. we're ever going to see our way to the other side of this. Yeah, totally yeah. agree. Let's see, Ryan. We got a question from Chris. How do you move away from work-life balance and start to think? of work-life integration. It seems like this is something we need to give thought to as working from home becomes the new norm. Mm. Mm. You've been working from home for a while, but you do the thing that I do, but just differently. Like you have a separate place to work. Yeah. I think I I, that, that's one of the that, keys. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's really important. I think it's having boundaries around when you're working and when you're not, because when you work from home, you can just always be working. Mm. And even when you're not really working, you're kind of working and it just bleeds into everything. And then you're not present for anything in your life that isn't work related. Right. Yeah. So, so the work-life balance thing, I mean, to me, it's more like the work-life integration, right? And that's what Chris is saying here. And I, I think it's much harder if everything is integrate if you're working and having a family and having dinners and everything's at home right now it, everything it becomes the stew and you can't mm. you, there's no balance within the stew it's all sort of integrated right and so i find the, the the way that i mean the reason we rent a co-working space is it's easier for me to be able to come here and, and do the thing you know, if i'm writing a book or, or whatever um but it also it sets up an, a, a, a trigger, a creative environment for me where I feel different in that space. And even we were trying to do the Zoom thing from home for a little while. I think we did three podcast episodes mm -hmm. on Zencaster. It was, it felt wrong because it was also in my home. Like the environment felt wrong as well. It wasn't just the lack of face-to-face, -face, mm -hmm. but I'm used to this environment now. Yeah. And, but now everybody is at home, right? And they and they can't go to a co-working space. Mm -hmm. You can't even go to Starbucks and, and get away from the house. Like if you're right. compelled to work at home, now a lot of people are grappling with what those rules look like mm -hmm. in order to like maintain some kind of sanity when they're doing Zoom calls in their living room like all day and their toddler is, you know, chewing at their ankle. Yeah. yeah. And, and there may even be boundaries you can set up. Like I've heard Seth Godin talk about he uses two different machines. Like he'll use a, a laptop, an old, really old ratty laptop to write on. Uh -huh. And then if he wants to surf the web, he has like a tablet. Uh -huh. And like a Faraday machine, it's like <laughs> disconnected from the internet, just right. purely for writing. Yeah. You know? uh, Jonathan Franzen does that, and he cut off, uh, he cut the Ethernet cable and glued it like into super the computer. Glued, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I mean, there are things you can do. Uh, I've done experiments where I I uh, have my wife hide the Wi-Fi password from me, mm -hmm. and so like you, there are things that you can do. That, uh, that set up those boundaries. But I also, I think there's a physical environment boundary. So it could even be that you have a tiny desk on top of your laundry, your, your washing machine, and that's the place you've decided to work. I mean, that's like the, the Stephen King, you know, wrote in a closet for a while or whatever. It feels to me like setting up that separate space, even within your home, could be the trigger that you're working as opposed to, I don't know, letting the work bleed out into the 24 hours of the day. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's simple practices too. Just because you're at home doesn't mean you should just be in pajamas like all day, mm, every yes. day. Yep. You know, like, you know, create some structure and, you know, build some habits into, you know, how you're approaching every day so you're intentional about it rather than just pretending like you're, you know, at home sick for three months. Yeah, it's, yeah, you be know. intentional, set boundaries. The worst thing you can do is tell yourself that 
you're not able to set boundaries. Like there's some kind of boundary you can set to differentiate work from uh, yeah. your your yeah home life. And it could just be the time that you know if if, if yeah. it's nine to five and then right. I'm done for the day. Mm-hmm. You could set up a really aggressive email responder. <laughs> I've got some tips on that. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Cal Newport's working on his next. I, I can only I, I can mention this here, I guess, but uh, his next book is. Uh, I think it's called a, a world without email, mm. Uh, mm. and I know you and I are both like yeah. eager to figure this one out. Uh, yeah, how am I going to get in touch with him to get him back on the podcast <laughs> if he's not on email or social media? I message. That's it. <laughs> I message. <laughs> yeah, go right. Smoke signals. Yeah, uh, carrier I mean, pigeon. He's, he's the master. Yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah, he he really is. Um, and I mean, we can learn a lot from digital minimalism. But that was the thing when I read an early copy of his of digital minimalism to try to give him some feedback on it. And I said, "Hey, the the biggest thing that's missing here is email." He's like, "Yeah, it's a separate block. Like it's it's that mm-hmm. intense." Yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. Final question for Rich from uh, Nancy: What books does Rich recommend? I'd love to hear more details about his favorite books. Mm. I mean, that's just give us your top one hundred. Finding yeah, Ultra. Like- <laughs> There's <laughs> a book that I wrote. Um, you know, it depends on what you are interested in, I suppose. I mean, yeah. books that have been instrumental in my life, um, I would say um, uh, The War of Art has been huge yeah. for me. Pressfield. Stephen Pressfield's That's book. a great one, yeah. I had a buddy uh, buy that for me on audio. I was so glad that I listened to it like once a year on audio. So good. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on its surface, it's a book about you know how to cultivate the creative muse, get over like being blocked creatively, specifically as a writer. But I think it's applicable to anything you're trying to manifest yeah. in your life, becoming aware of what's preventing you from moving forward, and mm-hmm. strategies for deconstructing that and moving forward. Super, super impactful mm-hmm. book that I read at least once a year. Mm-hmm. Um, the Artist's Way, which is kind of a corollary to that book, mm-hmm. it's a program to unlock creativity and it's something that I, it's a practice that I started when I got out of rehab in 1998 and have continued to to practice. Mm. I wouldn't say every day, I'm not that good. I'm not Brian Koppelman who's like been, he's like the biggest fan of this. Um, but it's been very, very helpful to me and it, it's, it's key practices that help you unlock creativity mm. and become more expressive. One of which is the morning pages that I talked about earlier, like writing three pages in the morning, free form, like mm-hmm. just clears the cobwebs out, helps you get clarity on your day. Um, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, that saved my life. Yeah. Now that book isn't gonna be applicable to you know, <laughs> <It's> <laughs> everybody. Um, but I actually think the 12 steps are so profound. You don't have to be an alcoholic or a drug addict to get benefit from that. I agree. Yeah, I, I agree. I've looked at how um, Russell Brand, uh, Brand has been mm. yeah. sort of propagating his own version of that. Yeah, he does a live show where he brings somebody up on stage and he kind of takes them through the steps uh-huh. and and you realize like they're just incredibly powerful tools for yes. uh, self-improvement in mm-hmm. every regard. You know, it's basically, there are core things that are rooted in all all manner of ancient religions and structures from and it's essentially like you got to look at yourself objectively you got to take stock and inventory of how you've been living get mm-hmm. clarity on how you've become a fuck up mm-hmm. then you've got to admit that you're all fucked up yeah and then you got to mm-hmm. like begin the process of repairing all the damage that you created and then check yourself on a daily basis when you go awry and when you do this you start to see patterns in your own behavior stuff that you're unaware of and it just makes you more cognizant of 
how you behave and and it allows you to like rectify your mistakes more quickly and it's it's just it's a, it's an it's an incredible program yeah. so even if you're not an alcoholic read the big book of yeah. alcoholics yeah no it's, i yeah i've been doing uh <clears throat> alanon mm. It, which is like uh, yeah. it's kind of a twelve step thing, yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, it's it's been incredibly help, helpful. Do you do do you read any read any fiction? Right now, I'm not reading any fiction. Yeah. I'm just I was just curious. Yeah, I, I'm mostly nonfiction reader yeah. too. It's like re- I do like fiction, but I'm more of like everyone's always like, oh, the book was way better than the movie, and I'm like, uh, I just kind of want to watch the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. Uh, I've been reading the, a novel by uh, Lionel Shriver. She wrote. Uh, we need to talk about Kevin, which is, was turned into this really beautiful movie as yeah. well. Um, wow. I but, didn't know it was a book. Yeah, yeah. And and her writing is some of the most gorgeous writing I've, uh, I've ever, ever read. She has this new book out. It's sort of about our obsession with fitness as we age. The two main characters are in their 60s, and they're both very fit people. The husband's getting ready to run, run his marathon for the first time, and she has two bad knees from a life of, of fitness, and like she's now feeling like a sort of resentment toward her husband because uh-huh. he's doing this marathon and at the same time that she can't run anymore. And th- there's a fascination um, – uh, with youth culture and Instagram and like one of their neighbors is 19 years old. And like, it's, it's just, I, there's something really fascinating and she communicates it. You know, I think sometimes fiction communicates some of the most sort of profound truths. Yeah, 100%. It gets in that interior life that yeah. it's hard to, hard to convey even through narrative nonfiction mm-hmm. in a way. And so, but you can tell it's very, auto fiction as well like it's kind of about her life as well yeah, yeah it's really good um rich thank you so much for being here today brother you're awesome man. For having me, man i really appreciate, appreciate it i love you guys i love you man i want to encourage people to check out your podcast we'll put a link to it in the show notes as well and um where else should we send them uh richroll.com or just google my name stuff comes up but the podcast available wherever you listen to podcasts the rich roll podcast and Got cookbooks, memoir books, all that kind of stuff you can find on my website. Yes, indeed. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. Thanks, patrons. The Minimalists.